This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. If baseball is hoping to be lucky, those are two words that shouldn't be around during a pandemic. Let's hope to be lucky. The NHL is a little bit different. The NHL has chosen to create a bubble, although they call it a hub, and they've done it in Toronto, and they've done it in Edmonton. And as we head into a civic holiday weekend, question is always, what do you do on the civic holiday weekend? Are there supposed to be fireworks? Eh, not usually. Uh, is it like May 2-4 and you go camping? Mm, no. What are you doing? I don't know. What is the civic holiday weekend for? Maybe this starts a new tradition. I would highly doubt it because uh, keeping rinks cool in the midst of the summer is difficult. But at least for 2020, the year that doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense, the civic holiday weekend means the start of the National Hockey League playoffs. Exactly. Of course. Makes perfect sense. Well, here's a man who's going to be covering it throughout the playoffs that will take place in Toronto and then Edmonton and then solely Edmonton. He used to cover all sports in London. He now covers the National Hockey League for the score. Please welcome John Mattis to London Live. John, how you doing? Good, Mike. Good. I really, uh, well, first of all, thanks for the introduction and thanks for having me on. And I really like your, your slogan there, your tagline for 2020, the year that doesn't make sense. Uh, I, I fully endorse that. Yeah, and you know what? Maybe it doesn't make sense that anybody is going back and playing professional sports. However, we watched all kinds of national hockey leaguers make their way to Toronto, to Edmonton, and it's not like the next day we got a story about 93 positive cases. What do you make of how this has started? Well, first of all, I'd say it's been really a tremendous success so far from the NHL perspective. You've seen the league struggle, uh, whether it was Major League Baseball, as you alluded to, and, and that ongoing situation where they're not in bubbles and where they're traveling around. That, to me, doesn't make a ton of sense. And the fact that they're leaving some of the decision-making to teams individually, and it's not a league-mandated situation, the calling games and in terms of the health and safety decision-making. <laughs> So you've got Major League Baseball, then you got the NHL, where I think there's almost two extremes here. The NHL has taken a very hands-on approach and left very little to the teams individually. Uh, they're doing everything they can to keep this thing secure, uh, in obviously concert with with the Players Association, and even something as simple as limiting um, family members uh, and, and their time with the players to just the conference finals and the Stanley Cup final, I think that's a big step in the right direction. I think putting your foot down for something like that is smart. Just really keeping a tight, tight watch on what's going on in these hub cities is essential. Once you have an outbreak, you never know what's going to happen in terms of the positive case uh, load and and just where how it'll escalate. And so they enter the two hubs in Edmonton and Toronto successfully, zero positive cases amongst more than 800 players in the last week of training camp. We haven't had numbers for the last few days, so we'll see if once they were all in these hub cities, any positive cases popped up. But looking around the league and seeing the number of players that are quote-unquote unfit to play, it's not a huge group. So you assume that the entry into the hubs was fairly successful. 
and that bodes well for this thing uh, getting off the ground. And you hope that the the tightness of the bubble, the rules and regulations, the protocol doesn't loosen as this goes along, and that the players have the mental health and the physical health to continue, and that we're able to see a champion crown. I think the NHL is in a really good spot right now, but uh, there's still some really big hurdles to jump as we move along. Well, that's that's kind of a good description for 2020 as well. Big hurdles as we move along, and right now the NHL is trying to limit the height of its hurdles as we talk with John Mattis, who covers the NHL for the score. We've seen 12 exhibition games played. They're over and done with. They were played in situations that some players described as weird or odd or I've never played in a game like that before. What did you make of what you saw from the exhibition play? Yeah, to like to be honest, I thought that the way it was presented on TV and the feel of the game, the so- the sounds and the sights was pretty good. Like I don't have any major complaints. There, it's not going to be perfect with them piping in crowd noise into the broadcast. Uh, it's going to always sound a little off. You know, they score a goal, it's a second off because the guy is manning a button and he obviously can't be right on the money in terms of actual crowd noise, but. It's like anything in life, Mike. You get used to it, right? So as long as the NHL doesn't have these big bells and whistles and doesn't try to be too gimmicky, I think people will get used to this new normal through the broadcast. The players is a different situation. Uh, they got to deal with the ambiance and, and the emptiness of these arenas. And uh, I think they will adapt as well. And I think they already are. And the fact that it's an even playing field makes it a lot easier to wrap your head around everyone's dealing with the same thing. So it's very unique. It's it's unprecedented. The fact that there's no fans in the arena, the fact that it's just under these odd circumstances, this long layoff, uh, the fact that the virus could hypothetically be spreading during a game. Um, So it's never going to be normal, but I I felt that from watching the games and seeing, uh, you know, the, the tarps over the seats, you get used to that pretty quickly. Uh, when when the play when the action is happening, they don't pan out much, so you don't notice that the fans aren't there. And then the sounds, you get more of the uh, you know the chirps or, or uh, the communication between teammates. And then you also hear you know the skates moving and the sticks uh, hitting the ice and, and and the crisp passes and all that. So I think it's been all right. I was expecting uh, more, I guess, bumps in the road, if you want to call it that, from a broadcasting perspective. But honestly, the the exhibition round went pretty well. And the NBA, if we use that as an example, played their first two meaningful games last night. And the NHL has this, too, where there aren't fans, but LeBron James pointed to the fact that he was playing in front of Chris Paul and other players and if you're looking for motivation there's nothing like having some peers watching what you're doing in order to say you know what I'm going to show these guys so maybe there's that too because NHL players will attend NHL games and you yourself are going to be attending from real close tell us exactly how this is going to work yeah so on the on the topic of the players watching the games that that's a funny layer of all this right is like they're not only in the same bubble in the same hub city in the same hotels as their rivals, which could create some awkward moments, but they're allowed to go watch the games uh, they can hang out in a lounge or as we've seen through the exhibition round, they can go up right up to the glass and watch if they're playing next and it's just it's got this minor hockey feel, which is kind of nice and and as as you alluded to. 
perhaps there's there's some extra motivation if you're looking over and seeing a guy that that you really respect watching you. Um, and yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna head to uh, to Toronto on Saturday and, and check things out and try to get a feel for how weird this thing is, how much it resembles normal life, uh, being inside a rink when there's an actual uh, meaningful when there's meaningful stakes. Uh, obviously, exhibition round, nothing is really up for grabs there. It's just a bit of a warm up. So. We've got noon, Cal- or Carolina and New York, and then you've got the Islanders in Florida at 4, and then Pittsburgh and Montreal at 8. That's just in Toronto. So on a number of levels, I'm interested in you know the ice quality, uh, how they do the, the Black Lives Matter um, honor, uh, how, they, how, they, how they approach that, because they've said that they will do some sort of recognition of that movement and of the pandemic and It'll be interesting to see that, especially in person. Uh, it's presented, obviously, very well to the broadcast. You wonder what it's like behind closed doors. And from what I gather from uh, other reporters who have been on the inside for exhibition games, you can really hear the players talk uh, when you're inside the rink. So, you know, there might be a, an offsetting penalty or a fight, and you can hear them going at each other in the penalty box. So that's something I'm looking forward to, just getting behind the scenes, behind the curtain a little bit, um, and then on the other side of the ledger, something I'm not looking forward to about the whole experience is just the testing and the wearing the mask for, you know, hours upon hours and and dealing with that part of it, which I'm sure people listening can relate to if they've been outside the house uh, for any extended period of time. But no, all in all, it, it, it seems like it'll be something that I'll never forget in a lot of ways uh, because it's, it's really a once-in-a-lifetime thing, what's happening before us, what we hope. That uh, it's a once in a lifetime thing. That's it. John Mattis joining us covers the NHL for the score, national writer for them, and used to cover all kinds of London sports not too, too long ago. John, in terms of what protocols there are for you going into the hub, do you get a big document that you download and read through, or do you kind of, are you taken step by step once you arrive? Do you know any of that? Yeah, so how it works is, well, the NHL has given us uh, some information on it. You approach the building, and you have to have an app downloaded. It's called Clear. Uh, I guess they're using it with the players and staff and everything. It's Anyone entering the building has to use this app where it's connected to your temperature. I guess you look at some sort of monitor, and it, and it takes the temperature. It, it scans your face, and you go through a questionnaire about your symptoms, etc. Uh, and that's to get into the arena and as, as some people might know who are listening, media is not allowed to be anywhere else within the Hub City uh, environment, the, the bubbles. Like, I can't go to the hotel um, that the players are staying at, for example, or, you know, there's restaurants that only they can go to. So our access is limited to the rink, and uh, we can't get in until 75 minutes before, uh, before the game. And I believe, and I'll find this out, I guess, tomorrow, uh, that we get kicked out after the game just because they want to kind of be accounting for everyone who's in the building and know where everyone is. So it doesn't seem like it's going to be too strict in terms of, uh, you know, the screening process as long as you're not showing symptoms and as long as you signed up properly. That's kind of the extent of the protocol from what I gather is if, if, you're, if you're healthy and you have a mask on and, you know, you're paying attention to the way that you're uh, operating throughout the day, whether it's, you know, cleaning your station or, sanitizing your hands or or whatever then then you're in the clear um and then in terms of interactions with the players 
it's all via uh, via Zoom. So normally you go in the locker room, you interview a player face to face. This will be you know you're sitting in the press box and you're on a Zoom call with players who are down below a couple of uh, levels. So that's a little odd. Uh, it's not quite the same, but uh, that's that's what you got to do in, in this situation. And hey, that's kind of the way we work. That's uh, that's what you have to do in this particular situation. John, we look forward to the coverage. Thank you so much for all the time today. Keep safe getting into the hub, okay? Thanks, Mike. I appreciate you having me on, and uh, stay safe, everyone. We'll talk soon. That's John Mattis. Covers the National Hockey League, National Writer for the Score, and he's heading into the hub. And those are the kinds of things that he has to do in order to head in. Go through those screening processes, follow all of the rules. Everything's being done by Zoom. There still are no fans, but I still look at the fact that if you if you look over, you know, think about it if you've ever even played a rec game. If you look over and there's one person watching you, all of a sudden there is that incentive. It's nice to have 18,000 people cheering for you, sure. But anyone worried about this being a completely empty arena with nobody watching? Yeah, no, that's not the thing. And the NBA games last night were great. And it really didn't feel, from a TV viewing perspective, as though you were watching them in anything that was empty. NBA teams had played three warm-up games, and these are now essentially regular season games. But there was some good basketball played last night, and they were very entertaining games. So they're staying in their bubble, and the NBA has, has done very well in terms of you know, hardly any case numbers within their bubble. The NHL hopes to do the same in the hub. Major League Baseball is a completely different story. Uh, the SEC and college football has decided they're going to play a 10-game schedule. They seem clueless. Remember, the SEC is essentially the Southern Conference, where if you look at their numbers in the United States, you would think, yes, that, that matches. They seem clueless. And we'll see what happens. The NFL is still trying to figure things out. The Buffalo Bills sent all their rookies home because they had positive tests. You guys haven't even started doing anything yet. Football doesn't fit in the pandemic. I'm sorry. I'm a big football fan. It doesn't fit. And Major League Baseball's protocols, it's not that they don't fit. It's just that they don't seem to be good. This hour, we are going to be talking with the Director of Education with the London District Catholic School Board. We are also going to be talking with Peter Bethlen-Falvey, who is the president of the Treasury Board. You just heard from him at Queen's Park. And I've, I've kind of done some digging around and picked some brains hearing that we were going to have an app that was only accessible by, maybe the, the way to say it is, fairly new phones because you have to be able to run a certain operating system. And we're into the iOS 13s right now. And the reason they couldn't just develop a more basic app and have it, you know, if you have iOS 6, this can still run it, is simply because this is this is the way that apps work. The easy answer is, why did they do it this way? Because they had to do it this way. That's the easy answer. Because in order to have the data flow being what it is, in order to be able to, to talk with all the phones and, you know, hit on each other's Bluetooths, you had to do it this way. So, as Peter Bethlenfalvy pointed out, it operates on roughly 90% of Android phones, 80% of Apple phones, and it just counts on people being able to update them. And there have been so many little online polls and things like that 
as to whether or not people are going to download this app. And the answers are really predictable. They really are. Got it? No problem. And thanks for the emails I've received about that already. Got it? No problem. But you also have people saying, well, this is just another way for government to keep track of us. This is one of those leaps of faith that you have to take. Because this app is saying, no, no, that that's not what this does. And you're not putting in a name, you're not putting in email, you're not putting in any way to really find you. And you have to take that leap of faith that, okay, yeah, sure. Um, you know, how much of this data that is going to be mined is going to be used? Well, you know, we can't say, but right now you have to take it at face value that the answer should be none. That that's not what this app is for. And... That's what we have to do in terms of leap of faith. If you're not prepared to take that leap, then you're probably not going to download the app. If you are, then you're probably going to download the app. The other big topic is, of course, education. And now that we have more of a guideline, more information about what September is going to look like, let's catch up with somebody who is dealing with all of this information dealing with trying to keep students safe and continue education in this pandemic which is not an easy thing to do linda Stott joins us director of education with the london district catholic school board linda thanks for taking some time for us today uh, you're very welcome mike let's get your overall comfort level now that more information has come out because I would love to to know that you had this information a month ago and now it was finally announced to the public I highly doubt that's the way that it went so where's your comfort level sitting uh, we were asked uh, back uh, in June uh, to prepare for three scenarios uh, one was uh, the students all to come back the second one was the uh, sort of that mixed model where there is some in-class learning and some remote learning, um, and then totally remote. So uh, what ended up uh, being announced yesterday didn't come um, as, a, as a big surprise. Um, we are glad to have our students back. Um, what the the government did in looking at the, the situation with the medical officials is they've treated the different boards differently uh, depending upon what the incidence of COVID was in the area. So for us, what it meant is that uh, we will be in a position to bring our elementary students all back, uh, but with that, there will still be uh, masking, we will still have uh, what we're calling the cohorting, where those one particular class of students remain together. Uh, they'll see what they're going to likely see in the community, the, the directional arrows. Um, we will have to space out the recesses, the lunch hours. Um, so a lot of the things that uh, families and students are experiencing in the community um, they'll also experience in the school, and the further for our secondary students um, is that uh, they will be assigned to one of two cohorts, and they will attend either two or three days a week, and that will alternate so that they'll have some in-class learning as well uh, they will have remote learning where they continue um, with that subject area. 
the other difference that our high school students will encounter is that they're accustomed to taking four courses at the same time. And what the medical officials are saying, that's just a few too many contacts. So in elementary, you're part of one class and you're with that class pretty well the whole day. Um, whereas in secondary, you'd be part of four classes. So what we're doing is this new term that has uh, uh, emerged. It's called a quadmester. So the students will still have their same timetable, except that they will only be taking two courses at a time, which means from the beginning of the school year till about mid-November, the midterm, They'll take those two courses for a longer period of time, and then the the next two courses of the semester they would be taking uh, from mid-November on to the end of January. We're talking with Linda Stott, Director of Education with the London District Catholic School Board. Linda, there are going to be parents who, no matter what, just because we are in a pandemic, are still a little concerned. We understand there is an opt-out opportunity and maybe you could could clarify how that would work. And then a question has come in from Teresa asking, if you choose to opt out at the beginning, could you choose to opt in if you feel that things are, are going okay and you're more comfortable sending your child? Yeah, these are all, uh, these are all great questions. And um, like you noted, like we just got this information, so we're just processing a lot of the details ourselves. But it was something that we were anticipating. So um, what we will provide our parents even more information with is what are those, um, those other things that we're doing in the school, uh, especially with the elementary, where they still have uh, up to 30 students to mitigate what that would look like. And with that information, what we will be asking parents, are they comfortable um, in sending their child their children? And... So we need to know that at the beginning, um, as does the um, the bus company, so that uh, we can make sure that for those who absolutely need to be transported, we have transportation for those students also. So if uh, a parent says initially to us that they're not comfortable at the beginning, um, there will be time periods where they will be able to, to opt in and we're just trying to figure out uh, ourselves uh, just how much time that, that we would need. Uh, so what uh, we're going to need to do is, first of all, find out just how many of our uh, students will be coming back to us in person and how many will be continuing remotely uh, because we're going to need to make sure that we can provide learning for them uh, in both situations. So how we do that uh, is still uh, things that we need to work out. Uh, but we need to know first just what are the numbers uh, that we're that we're looking at. Gotcha, Linda Stott, joining us, director of education with the London District Catholic School Board. Uh, Linda, everything was done to try and continue education in the spring, and there were a lot of challenges, and it wasn't easy. And let's face it, you know. Maybe we didn't get to everything that needed to be done. Is there talk about ways to make up for kind of lost time, added review provisions, anything like that? 
yes, and we fully realize that. And um, I think one of the advantages that we certainly have right now in September is that at least uh, we have been working in the meantime in planning for it. Uh, March 13th happened with no notice, and we've learned a lot um, ourselves um, in the interim. And we know that uh, different students had different experiences uh, with the online uh, remote learning. So one of the, the things that we are looking at through this year is what we're calling um, those gap closing strategies. And what is that when a, when a teacher starts a, a new unit, for example, uh, there'll probably need to be uh, more review uh, that takes place just to make sure that everybody um, is up to speed and has that, that background information. Um, so that will be certainly a, a key part. Um, and this year, um, with the secondary as well, we know that um, some courses per semester, uh, they, they basically work completely in person. And then you have others now that are uh, emerging into another course where um, probably well close to one half of, of the course was remote. So we know that the students are coming to us at, uh, at different levels in terms of the experience of last year, and our plans will uh, take that into account. Linda, thank you so much for the update on all of this. I know you've got a number of conference calls continuing to try and piece all of this together. So we'll talk again in the future as the plans continue to come into fruition. But we really appreciate your time right now. Keep safe. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. That's Linda Stott. Linda's the Director of Education with the London District Council School. The focus of the scientific world is on, I know it's Friday and we shouldn't be having fill-in-the-blank tests. This one's pretty easy. COVID-19. We're trying to find treatments. We're trying to find a vaccine. And we've got some of our best medical minds on it. In the meantime, there are still things going on. Things are still happening. We've been encouraged from the beginning not to avoid emergency rooms if you're not feeling right. We have been encouraged from the beginning to seek out medical help and medical advice if something doesn't feel right and it's not COVID-19 related because things are still happening. And in that same vein, there is something that has been happening for years and years and years that just doesn't seem to get the attention it needs. And a very good friend of the show, Kim Vanderskelde, who has been amazing in putting together all kinds of PPE during this pandemic and is always involved in a lot of things, Kim appeared on London Live months ago talking about the topic we're going to get an update on next, and that is children battling cancer. Kim, thanks so much for being here. How are you doing? Oh, well, thanks for having me on. Well, we talked a few months ago, and we talked about a number of children you know. One, you know incredibly well. And we talked about chemotherapy 
and cancer treatments for children. Take us back in time, for anybody who may have missed that conversation, because it was a lengthy one, about some of the concerns that you don't realize will even exist until you are someone who knows somebody else who is a child who battles cancer. Well, I think uh, one of the things that... Uh, I, I think there's a lot of things that cross over with adults and children. We realize that uh, when someone goes through chemotherapy treatments, we... We know how um, ill they become, and but we kind of think that once treatment is done, that life goes on and everything is um, back to normal. And uh, in the adult world, maybe, maybe so. But with children, there's a very it, it goes on for the rest of their lives. And over ninety five percent of children who battle cancer and um, survive it have serious, significant health issues by the time they're 45, and that's caused by the treatments that they're on. And the treatments that they're on are developed for adults, not for children. And that's how this all got started. And um, and why is that happening? Well, that's happening because there isn't the money there to research, to find drugs and treatments that are better suited for children. So that, and that right, that's got to be the most shocking part. I mean, the idea that we know that children are developing long term, in some cases, life long, whether it's challenges, whether it's health complications, whatever it happens to be, that they're developing this. And you're saying it happens in 95% of the cases. And yet somewhere along the line, no one has deked off the path to say, you know, I'm, I'm going to work out a better treatment for children. That hasn't happened. Well, if there's no money there to do it, why would anybody want to dedicate their life to something to develop? I mean, they would want to, but how could they um, devote their life to finding these treatments when there's no money there to back up their research? And that there's a key question. Yeah, and that falls into the hands of our federal government. And the last time we spoke, I think it was before the election, and uh, in. I had met with um, the Prime Minister, and they had given us in the election uh, platform. We were so amazed and, and shocked and thrilled when they committed to $30 million into uh, pediatric cancer research. And we were very excited that um, when it was the uh, budget was tabled in March that we were going to see this $30 million, and then COVID descended upon us. And now there's rumblings that um, if if there's anything even in the budget for childhood cancer, um, it will be a very um, significantly different number. So, which strikes me, I, I, under, I understand everything that's going on with COVID and there's, you know, it's changed um, our landscape of our lives tremendously, but for kids with cancer, nothing has changed. And you were so close. I mean, page 15, wasn't it? Wasn't it page 15 of the budget? There it was. Yes, it was. And Words? Yeah, words. Numbers. Even more so, you know, aside from the the money, which was obviously vital in getting that research, was the words, like, we're going to find out what families need the most. And so there was that um, part of it, too, is that, finding out what families need because they families have been neglected as well for a long time, but we're talking lives, right? And I think we're, <laughs> we're talking children's lives. When a child dies at 70 years 
of on average of life of life lost. And it just you know I've I've seen all these um, announcements over the even over the last week over fifty million dollars in announcements of funding to different projects. One um, at the end of my street, um, I think five over five million dollars invested in um, a development. Uh, at the end of my street, and I had to stare at that. And I think when I started this fight, that was a cornfield, and and that that hurts, right? So, yeah, and so we have to. I, I I want the government to know that if the funding isn't there in the new uh, budget that'll be tabled in the fall, that this is going to be an, a a black mark. It's going to be people are going to be upset that it's not going to just. Uh, fade away that people will notice because it was there we're talking with kim vanderskelda we're talking about the fact that research dollars were going to be made available in the budget to look at treatment of children with cancer and the idea that lives could be changed that lives could be improved and now yeah we know the government is spending a lot of money in a lot of areas to keep a lot of people going we know that the CERB is now going to be transitioned into employment insurance. We know how many billions of dollars have been spent, but at the same time, the money was there, was earmarked. So, Kim, do you still hold out hope that when we do hear the details of the next budget, that maybe it won't be on page 15, but there will still be a page that still has something? Or do you know basically now from what you're hearing from government that, you know, that even if there is something, it's like you say, it's it's not going to be what it was i honestly i don't think it'll be what it was and i i think i have to think realistically and think okay given everything that um has transpired uh, again logically maybe it can't be 30 million dollars i want it to be 30 million dollars because i want it to be 100 million but realistically maybe not but maybe it just has to be, it still has to be $30 million. Maybe it just has to be spread out differently rather than $30 million in one chunk. Like they had said, maybe it needs to be over three years and, you know, to give them more time, but it has to be there because like I said, there has, these lives depend on it. We, since we, you and I spoke last, we've lost several children in our area and how can these families, if there's nothing there, you're slapping these families in the face and saying that your your children didn't matter. You know, if we're if we're investing millions of dollars in buildings, you know, in brick and mortar over children's lives, what are we what are we telling our parents? What are we telling our children that brick and mortar is more important than lives? And and that's not that's not Canadian. No, no, it isn't. Kim, thank you so much for outlining this. I hope that when that budget comes out, there is a way, even if it is spread out. What would the money be used for? Where where could you see this going right off the bat if it was in there? Um, right off the bat, I think there's, uh, there's lots of different um, scenarios. But I think number one is we have to look at uh, trials, how trials, children access trials in Canada. Uh, opening So changing how that happens how um, provinces, right now there's the division of if a child is qualifies for a trial in one province over another, there's a lot of argument battling over what province is going to pay for it. That needs to be taken care of. And then just um, really 
to, in my opinion, getting the researchers to understand the money's there. So um, let's start um, getting some research into into uh, children's cancers. So the mindset of, okay, the money's there, let's deal with it. And then getting that money into the right hands. So the- Kim, I know you've been fighting for this so hard, and it feels like for so long. Keep up that fight, mm-hmm. because uh, adding a voice to this, you know, you got you you did what needed to be done that is so hard to do once. You know, it's almost like that foot's in the door. Keep that foot in the door. I will. It's a big foot. <laughs> yeah, okay, good. Okay. Keep it strong. Uh, we'll stand behind you. We'll keep it strong. Thanks so much, Mike. Thank you for the time. Have keep a great safe. day. Bye. It's Kim Vanderskelde. Kim has been talking about this for a long time because her daughter is one of those cancer survivors. And the idea that almost there, almost there. And then this happens and now everything's up in the air again in terms of whether or not you'd be able to get some research dollars and, and get those wheels rolling. But I firmly believe that because it was heard once, and, and But Kim's been at this place before, where it was heard, where it was, yeah, that's a good idea, we'll see what we can do, and then nothing happens. But this time she was on page 15 of the budget, page 15 of the federal budget. So, you know, if you are somebody that has a connection to childhood cancer in that way, make sure that if you are talking with an MP, make sure that if you have somewhere where your voice can be heard, that it was that close. You know, add your voice to it. Keep Kim's foot inside that door. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.